0: A lot of the products that we've developed have come from these um, very very harrowing experiences of sitting with, with a mother who's just lost a child and you know hearing her story and realizing that you know we've got to do something about this and you know so health insurance was a product that I felt we'd never ever be able to do um, but that I made a promise to a woman in, in, in a slum in Bangladesh um, 10 or 15 years ago now and I promised her we'd find a way to do it and we have and we've done that
1: this episode of search with purpose wouldn't be possible without my day job at exige international exige is an executive search firm providing talent within the western european market for a whole range of financial services organizations we as a group of executives at exige believe that recruitment can be done differently it can be done in a way which serves the needs of both our clients and our candidates and also the world in which we live we've committed to not only finding the very best talent available in the world, but also to giving 10% of our search revenue to forest protection charities to ensure that the future generations have these treasures intact and can enjoy them just as we have. So if you'd like to find out more about our work here at Exige, then please do check out our website at exigeinternational.com. That's E-X-I-G-E international.com. Or, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn, and I'll be very happy to have a conversation. In today's episode, we meet Richard Lefley, one of the true pioneers of microinsurance in Africa and in Asia. Richard brings over 20 years of experience in these most demanding markets. He'll share what it takes to raise $25 million from the Gates Foundation at a time when the Gates Foundation wasn't even thinking about microinsurance. He'll share with us why he believes success in these most demanding markets is about distribution more than it is about a product. And he'll also tell us on a personal level what it takes to keep going in an incredibly difficult business after 20 years. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, I give you Richard Lefley. Richard, thank you very much for joining me today on the show. It's really nice to have you here. It's a pleasure Um, to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Richard, what got you interested in microinsurance?
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, for me, I think it was kind of a combination of things. Um, I remember very clearly being a 28-year-old, kind of fairly idealistic reinsurance broker, sat at my desk in, in London and kind of looking at the people that I was working with and thinking, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? You know, do I really want, you could literally kind of see the generations of, of promotion around the office and think, you know, in 10 years, I could be that guy. And in 20 years, I could be that guy. Um, and and that kind of, I mean, I, they were great people. That just wasn't something that really kind of felt me, filled me with passion, uh, you know, that I wanted to do with my life. And, and that combined with, you know, just a really solid understanding of um, what it looked like to, um to be living um, in, in, in Africa, to be facing the kind of risk that these people kind of faced every day. And, and you know, I remember very clearly looking at some statistics from Swiss Re and, and, and thinking, you know, the number of people that get affected by natural disasters in the emerging world um, and and the cost of those events, um, there's just such a misalignment. Um, and, and, that, and that kind of resulted in me taking a couple of weeks off and going down to, to Zambia um, to kind of hanging out in a village trying to you know, help build a school um, and in the process just really living in, in those communities and I, I remember asking one of the families that I was living with kind of what you know why they were here why they were still in this village um, and and they got pretty angry with me actually and kind of <laughs> went went off and came back with a with a the snakes and ladders board and said look you know we're just trying to work our way out of poverty you know we're trying to work our way to a better life where we can feed our kids and you know, and pay for for things when they happen. Um, and this one family, I mean, the, the the lady told me, okay, well, look, you know, we, we started off life here in the village, and then we ended up in the capital city in an apartment with a motorbike, you know, middle class people. Um, you know, she'd been a school teacher, her husband was a security guard. And then, you know, they got sick, uh, and he'd gone on and died. And they'd spent all of their money on medicine, and then on the funeral, and here they were back in the village. And she said, look, I know you can't stop bad things happening, but can you help me with the cost so that when disaster strikes, I don't slide all the way back down one of these snakes down to the bottom of the board? And a light bulb went off in my head, and I said, well, that's insurance. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I know about. It's something that I, I understand from the work that I've been doing in, in, in the reinsurance market. Um, and I started to look into why, uh, you know, these people didn't have access to insurance. You know, At that point, 97% of people didn't have uh, an insurance uh, policy, and didn't have access to it and so that was that was really the the, the thing that started off this whole journey over the last twenty years of creating my
1: cruncher fantastic. so how do you go from that idea, that recognition that there's a need from that experience in the village with snakes and ladders, how do you go from recognizing that to actually creating a company? Tell us about yeah. that
0: yeah, I, actually looking back on it, it's slightly terrifying and and i and, and I kind of, if I had a time machine I could go back and, and kind of give some advice to 20, 28 year old Richard Leftley, I probably would have told him to stay a reinsurance broker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I certainly didn't have a business plan. And I certainly didn't even really have a plan, let alone a business plan. I didn't even know what a business plan was, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I just, like all great journeys, and it sounds a bit corny, but I just kind of put one foot in front of the other. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was okay, so at a very high level, 97% of people don't have insurance. I think I know why that is. Um, I think it's to do with the fact that the products are too complicated and the, and, and, and the way in which the products are being sold, which is predominantly being, being led by a kind of agent. And once you kind of got an agent uh, and you, know, you have to pay his or her salary, then that starts to dictate a whole number of things. You know, the premium has to be of a certain scale in order to justify the agent. Um, and if the premiums are of a certain scale, then the sum insured is of a certain scale. And if the sum insured is of a certain scale, then you need to have a complicated product with medical underwriting and all of the things that we do in the West. And that isn't appropriate for, for the 97% of people living on low and, and middle incomes in Africa and Asia. And so you know, it, it started with that kind of an understanding. And so it was like, and, and so where are we going to start? Um, and I identified that there was an opportunity to work with the kind of microfinance uh, organizations um, so these are these were banks and and, and kind of semi banks that were lending money to groups of women and that's where i started I, I embedded myself into into those organizations i started um kind of finding ways to extend insurance through the loans that they were giving um to these groups of women that that taught me an awful lot it taught me the products that they needed it taught me a lot about kind of some of the customer journey the features of the customer journey. And then, of course, you know, you started to then say, okay, and now what? You know, so microfinance only had about 150 million clients out of the 4 billion people that don't have insurance. So it's a relatively small subset. So then you start saying, okay, who else can I work with to distribute my insurance products? And, And that led us on through a whole range of different organizations, including, you know, mobile phone organizations, you know, electronic wallets. Um, ride hailing companies and so you start to kind of then learn how to do that and, and distribute insurance through those through those organizations
1: mm. what do you what was the most thinking back to that time then that, that beginning what was the moment that you realized you had something that could work is there a project or something that really made you think yes this is it so what was the moment you thought i have something here and it can work
0: well in the, in the early days i mean this was this was in 2002 this is 20 years ago this is a long time before insure tech and fintech and all the things we talk about now i mean even mobile wasn't really a massive thing at that point i mean the big thing at that point was hiv so you know this is a long long time ago and at that point it, you know a lot of what we were doing was being financed by people like the gates foundation um and so you know they were giving us money to do this more like as a as a philanthropic um, enterprise, a social business, rather than a fully functioning kind of business. And I think, I think for me, the, the kind of the breakthrough moment probably came around two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, um, where we had been working for some years at that point, and we we had a bit of a breakthrough. We started to work with the mobile phone companies, so um, they started to show interest in using insurance to try and kind of change consumer behaviour. Um, so they had a they had an underlying business problem. Their their, their issue was um, a kind of issue with kind of customer loyalty. So they had a lot of customers, but those customers were were very uh, disloyal, and they were switching uh, around between different networks. And what we figured out was um, that no one really wakes up wanting to buy insurance, but people do wake up worrying about the risks they face. And so we used that kind of understanding um, to try and make the customers more loyal by offering them insurance in return for increased loyalty. So if they topped up more, if they, they topped up more of their airtime with one network, then they would get insurance as a reward. And it had a dramatic effect. So it was such a breakthrough. We, we, we signed up 20 million customers onto insurance for the first time in just 150 days. Hmm.
1: Well, that makes me think, like, about what what do you think people... Get wrong about or misunderstand about selling insurance in Africa and in Asia.
0: I, I think I think the most common mistake is is misunderstanding that this is a distribution challenge, not a product challenge. So you know, time and time again, I see, especially insurance companies. I mean, it's a very product-led industry, uh, and and I think it's one of the the, the last remaining product-led industries. And, and if you don't believe me. Um, pull out a pitch deck from an insurance company and and normally what it is is it's kind of like this is who we are and this is how fabulous we are this is how strong our balance sheet is Um, these are our partners and then it ends with these are our products Um, and so you know it it always goes to here are our products and and for me that's kind of irrelevant um, because once you do that um, then you just become a commodity and um, once you do that, then you know the, the next logical question is, OK, let me take your products and let me go find out if I can get a better product or a better price. Um, and actually, when we're talking about microinsurance, um, the most critical element here is the customer journey. The most critical element is, um, is working at how to remove friction. Um, because at the moment, when there's 97% of people who don't have insurance. Uh, they wake up every morning and they can't be bothered to buy insurance. So in many ways we're not competing with AIG or AXA um, or, or any of the insurance companies. We're actually competing with with apathy. Um, and so if you make it at all difficult to sign up and use insurance products, then people will just default to their to their kind of um, to their existing position of not buying it. Um, and so friction needs to be removed from the sign up process. So how do I sign up? How do I pay for? How do I I use the product? And if you can remove all of that friction, then you can you can have very, very dramatic kind of end results. Um, I think it's true. And I think I've seen certainly in, in my time that you, you can succeed with a bad product, but with a really good kind of frictionless digital customer journey. Um, but you, could, you can absolutely fail with a great product uh, and a terrible customer journey. And so we've seen that play out time and time again. And I think that's where most people make mistakes.
1: So I hear from that, that in Africa, in emerging markets in Asia, where you're trying to get to customers to develop a solution with them, the way in which you deliver it to them is almost as important as what you're giving to them. Um, it's more
0: important, absolutely. More important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that does bring to mind the question for me, though, It's like, why do people who may be struggling to feed themselves and their family, why do they need insurance?
0: It's a good question. Um, so, I mean, certainly, I think you know, if you go if you go into the slums in in Nairobi and stand there and say, anyone want to buy life insurance? I mean, <laughs> no one will. No, there won't be a, an orderly queue uh, formed. And, and and it's true. Like no, none of us wake up wanting to buy insurance. And if you're poor, you really, you know, if you're a, a low income African, you really don't wake up wanting to buy insurance. You wake up with many many things on your mind. And I think that that's the issue we can't sell insurance to these people but we can sell solutions to the risks they face you know i remember i remember sitting down with one of our clients and, and we're, I'm talking to them and, and I, and I asked them a question around kind of, what what causes you to spend money in unexpected ways and and she kind of it was brilliant and she kind of sat back you know she hasn't got any teeth in her you know in her, in her, in her kind of mouth at all and she kind of sits back and she just kind of shows to think and she leans forward and she says you know I eat risk for breakfast. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> and the most kind of profound, and you kind of think, what is she? you know, and and basically what she was trying to say is like her entire life is about risk. She wakes up, you know, she's worried about how do I get water without being attacked and losing you know and, and, and having my money stolen. How do I how do I do this without without kind of being you know assaulted, you know, and so her entire life is about risk. Um, and so when you when you address those risks. So, you know, instead of trying to sell life insurance, you say, hey, if something happens to you, would you like your kids to finish school? Then that's a very different conversation than would you like to have life insurance. And, that, and that's what I mean about the customer journey. Um, it's not about the product, right? If you, if you position the product front and center and say, this is the product I'm selling, who wants to buy it? You'll get no one to buy it. But if you say, you know, if you embed, um, if you embed into a brand that people trust, so a mobile phone company. And, and why do they trust it? They trust it because they're using it every day and because they top up. And when they top up airtime, they, they're pay-as-you-go customers. And when they, when they buy airtime, it works. And so when that brand says, hey, you know, uh, I noticed that you're sending money home to your family because you're a, a worker, you know, you're, you're a domestic worker in, in the city. I see that you're sending money home. Would you like your kids to finish school if something bad happens to you and, we, and you lose your job? Then you trust that brand, and you trust that actually, if something was to happen to you, then your kids would be taken care of. Um, it's easy to pay because you can pay in daily, you know, daily installments um, by deduct by small deductions from your airtime balance. So there's no there's no pain associated with paying. It's easy to sign up because all you have to do is press one or you know uh, you know press a press a button and, and you're signed up. So suddenly it's from a brand you trust. It's frictionless to sign up. It's frictionless to pay. And it's about a risk that you're worried about. It's not a product that you're being sold. It's about something that you you woke up this morning and thought, I really worry about how my kids would finish school if, if I lost my job. Um and people will respond to those products.
1: Mm. So can I do I hear in that? This, this this distribution channel, getting money, um, getting a distribution channel which works for your customers? And then When it gets paid out, how do you get that money to them? Is it always via the mobile phone or or is it how in these developing markets, where they maybe don't even have a bank account? How do you get the money to them? Sure.
0: Well, they certainly don't have a bank account. Um, Yeah. I mean, so what we do, I mean, firstly, it's kind of ingenious how they get to us. So, you know, the claim is, the claim for us is really the, the essential part, right? And so this is where you get to kind of earn your money, right? Where you get to demonstrate the value of the product. And so, I mean, firstly, we actually work with our clients to try and get them their claim paid. So they phone us up, um, normally they will phone us up or they'd make contact with us um, through a number of different channels that we have. And, and then we end up having a chat with them. We normally end up calling them um, and we ask them about what happened. And we ask them to go away and try and get, get some kind of documentation for us. And they say, okay, and, they, and off they go. And then we set ourselves a reminder kind of corporately on our system and after two days, if we haven't heard from them, it actually pops up on someone's screen, and it prompts one of our agents to call them back and say, "How are you getting on?" And nine times out of ten, the client says, "Well, you know, we're we're um, we're, we're struggling. You know, we, we went to the police to try and get a report, and we couldn't. They they want some money, they want some bribes or whatever. And and we say, okay, uh, then don't worry about the police report. We don't want you to pay them any money. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about someone in in in, the, in your community who?" Uh, who knows about what happened and they say, oh yeah, you know, the chief uh, or, the, or the imam or the or the pastor or the, the local official, you know, he knows about what happened. Here's his mobile phone number. So we call that person and say, hey, you know, tell us what happened to uh, to, to this person. And they tell us the story. And if it matches up, then we say, okay, now we can pay the claim. So you know, and we've paid claims uh, using kind of a, a snapshot, you know, a WhatsApp picture of a, of a paper handkerchief. That someone's written on it in a bar saying, "Yeah, I know I know this person and their and their mother died yesterday." And we pay claims. That's what we used to pay claims on. Um, and then we ask the client, "Well, how would you like the money? Um, you know, we can send it to your mobile phone account. We can uh, we can do that to your mobile wallet, um, or you can rock up to this bank branch and get the check. Or this, um, you know, we've got a relationship with this mobile phone company, and so they've got shops on every street corner. You know, we can send the money there." And, and it's up to the person what they want. And, and interestingly, our clients seem to want to interact with us digitally. So they want to buy the policy digitally, and they want to pay for the project digitally. But when it comes to the payout, which is you know, a few hundred dollars, they actually want it in cash or check, which is really weird. Um, but that's, yeah. how, that's how people prefer to, to do these things. They don't seem to trust. Uh, they seem to trust mobile, mobile money for small payments of you know, a, few, a few pennies but they don't trust it for you know a few hundred
1: dollars. So I'm hearing from that, there's an entirely different way of doing business, not only in the way that you think of selling the product, but in the way that you actually fulfill on the product. And there's a whole host of cultural and functional practical considerations, which maybe we don't even think of in the West. So when it comes to creating products um, for this, these markets as a, a white man who lives in the UK. How do you create products for people in those markets with those needs, Richard? How do you do that?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I think there's a mantra which is simple is best, um, you know, which which we try and apply. Um, and so, you know, we we started off, um, you know, with a kind of life insurance policy, and and you say, okay, so typically, a life insurance policy is you you pay me a dollar, I'll pay you five hundred dollars if you die. And then you start looking at it and saying, okay, now what else is in no a life insurance policy? Okay, well normally it says you have to be between 18 and 65. And then you ask the question, well, well why? I mean, well, the reason is, is because normally it's, it's rich people like me and you buying a million dollars or a million pounds policy. And therefore there has to be an upper age limit because obviously once you get past 65, you start to become a bit of a risk. But then you say, okay, well, well in Africa, the average age is 25. So if I sign up a million people, um, The average age is going to be 25 and of course there'll be three people out of a million who are 90 but the majority will be 25 and and actually what you don't realize is that in africa no one actually well not many people know how old they are so they don't have have a birth certificate they can't prove it and many people don't actually know exactly how old they are in fact i've met people um, time and time again who the dad has a government-issued id who's 30 and the son his son Uh, has a government-issued ID that also says he's 30. So, you know, you're operating in an environment where people don't know how old they are. They can't prove how old they are. And does it really matter? And so you start asking yourself the question, well, why do I need to know how old they are if if the average age is going to be 25, if I can sign up enough people? And so you start to just kind of like every single thing in in a traditional life insurance policy or accident policy or hospitalization policy, you just start to ask yourself these questions. Well, do I really need to know how old they are? And and and, f- and because the premium's is a dollar, am I actually going to go to you know northern Pakistan and and contest that the guy is sixty four or sixty six? Of course I'm not. You know, not for a <laughs> dollar, and certainly not to northern Pakistan. So you know, it's kind of so you start to ask yourself the questions around like why do we why do we have these things in insurance, and are they actually relevant? If I can get a million people to sign up, then you know it's the law of large numbers, right? It, it's kind of. Mm that's what insurance is about. So actually, what we, when we first started doing it, it's a long way, sorry, we did your question. But I mean, when we first started doing it, we, we would sit down with clients and we would ask them a lot of questions and then try and design the product around their needs. But what we discovered was it, it was a little bit like asking them, do they want to go on holiday to Tenbi or, uh, or Hawaii? You know, they have no idea what you're talking about. They've never had insurance. So they don't understand how to design insurance products. So, so actually, what we did was we ended up designing products based upon our knowledge and our experience, and we'll launch them and we'll get people to use them. And then, after we've seen a number of claims we made in, in a community, and we then go and ask the clients okay, what's your impression of this product? Why did you buy it? Why didn't you buy it? What do you like about it? Um, you know, how's the price point? How was the claims journey? You know, what did you think about it? And then we get real data, and it's really interesting. Um, so we, we, we actually end up designing products as, as you said, as white people sat in Cheltenham based upon 20 years of experience of selling to people. But we do sometimes get it wrong.
1: Mm. So is there a future in microinsurance? If I'm an insur- if someone in insurance right now, is, is microinsurance important still now? And is there a future in the industry?
0: I guess the real question should be, if you had a time machine, would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> you know 20 years is a long time to spend doing something isn't it um and i think the answer rather disappointingly to that question is no i wouldn't do it again i think it was just incredibly hard incredibly difficult um and i wouldn't probably advise a young richard leftley to embark on the journey however having said that i think it is it's incredibly it's needed right like i mean providing a safety net to people is is really in the the heart of what we're supposed to be doing as an insurance industry. I think we've learned a lot. Um, So the models changed, you know, kind of of interest. And I was looking at this the other day, interestingly, uh, my understanding of what was was broken, right? So, you know, you, you take a step back and you say, insurance companies have been around for an awfully long time. Insurance companies have been around in Africa and Asia for decades, you know, since independence, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and and, and longer before that and yet 97% of people still don't have insurance so the answer is not let's leave it up to the insurance companies you know something else has to has to has to change and so i think that there is a need for these kind of companies like microinsure who come along and design products and customer journeys and then get involved in selling the product and and educating the customer and collecting the premium and paying the claims and that's needed but the economics of that model is really difficult, um, and so I think as as Microendship, where we got to, was after twenty years, we realised, okay, um, you know, we are we are needed. You know, we've been a broker, we've been a we've been a call centre, we've been a technology company. So we've kind of been doing the same thing. We've been we've been trying to address the weaknesses that we see in the market, but the thing that we've been trying to fix is how we get paid for the value that we create. Um, and, I, and, and as microinsurer, we kind of got to the point where we discovered that, that actually the only way to make the economics work would be to become an insurance company. And, and you know, and that, and that way we could then um, have a kind of end to end, you know, we could create the products that we were selling. Um, and, that, and that way we wouldn't be kind of begging for a few, uh, you know, a, a small commission from the insurance company for all this work that we were doing. We would actually be able to control kind of the, the entire value chain. And so we set about trying to become an insurance company. Um, We thought, or I thought, you know, maybe the way to do that was to get into bed with a really big insurance company, one of the big insurance companies, and and have them buy us out. And then we'd become like their kind of specialist business unit. Um, But actually, my experience of that was pretty negative. Um, Certainly, I think the head office, um, the head office teams were fully on board and fully aligned. But when you got down into the countries and the people that you actually needed to do the business... Um, you know, in the operating companies, there was just a massive disconnect, and they and they just didn't seem that interested really in in actually uh, in doing this business. Partly because they were being shouted at as well to grow the revenue, and and micro insurances, you know, we're selling products that cost three three p to a pound, um, you know, so you can sell an awful lot of those, and it doesn't really move the needle on on the revenue scale. Um, and and so you know, there was this there was this disconnect, and and I think you know we need to become an insurance company, and. Uh, probably doing that with one of the big, big insurance companies just wasn't going to be realistic. Um, and so we just announced on the first of July we've we've tied up with a, a much smaller insurance company, a reinsurance company in Anguilla, um, who, you know, compared to the big guys, is absolutely tiny. But they have the right mental attitude of, okay, let's give it a go. Um, let's launch these products. We'll, you know, we'll we'll learn as we go. Um, and let's find. In many ways, they've got the mentality of how do we say yes rather than how do we say no.
1: I would be a remiss if I didn't ask you why you would tell that twenty-eight-year-old Richard Leftley not to do it. Why? Why would you say not to go into microinsurance?
0: I think the um, the the path that I have been fortunate enough to walk has been was so narrow and so dangerous. Um, And the chance of success a second time, I think, would be almost impossible. And therefore, that's why I would advise against it. I mean, I look back on that 28-year-old Richard Leffley. I mean, I set out on this journey with a a promise of $50,000. That was the funding that we started the the company with. Um, The chance of success, the chance of knitting together all of the um, all of the necessary partnerships, all of the necessary components that were required to get it launched, to get it successful, to get it to get us to the point where we're serving 65 million customers. You know, the chance of replicating that again is is tiny. It's, it's a one it's a one in one in a lifetime. So I, I, I would advise not to do it. <laughs> but I mean, that's I think that the good news I guess is that if I was 20 instead of being a time machine, if I was 28 now. There's an awful lot of things that we could learn that we wouldn't do again right so there's a lot of stuff you can look at and say well okay if i wanted to do this again then i wouldn't i wouldn't go down that avenue i wouldn't go down that road um and i would just start by doing you know this different kind of business model
1: mm. in a previous conversation you talked to me about your your own history in raising money for the company as well and i think you talked a bit about the stuff you did with the money you used to come from the gates foundation and I think many people who might be listening to the show are kind of early on in their insure tech careers, are trying to raise money. Maybe you could just tell us a bit about your experience there. What what happened in raising money there and what you learned about the big bad world of buying and selling and raising cash?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess over the 20 years, I've raised about $200 million. I, I totted it up the other day. Um, you know, so $200 million in, in, in grants and in, grants um inequity, um debt, you know, it, it's been um it's been a long old road. Um and there's been a lot of stuff um, you know that, that we've kind of been been involved with or I've been involved with. Um in the early days as I said it, it was predominantly philanthropy. You know this was not an investable business. This was this was early stage. It was kind of almost pre pre-VC you know and that's where we went to the Gates Foundation. So kind of what we did was you know well to begin with it was financed by kind of donations from wealthy uh, wealthy, well-to-do, um, you know, individuals who who felt that there there should be uh, the creation of this thing, you know, the, these safety nets for people, um, and that got us to the first kind of million customers. You know, that that enabled us to to kind of get started. And then when we got to kind of a million customers, it enabled us to go and have a conversation with the Gates Foundation. And I remember very clearly. I think it was 2003, 2004, and and it became very clear to me that I. I needed to get the kind of horsepower of someone like the Gates Foundation behind what we were doing. I couldn't finance it anymore in in, in small checks from, from wealthy individuals. You know, you needed yeah, the raw kind of checkbook size that, that the Gates Foundation can can grant you. I, I think we were looking for a couple of million dollars at that point. And I remember kind of trying to get on their on their radar screen, and it was incredibly hard. Um, you know, they they were interested in financial services for for the poor. So they, they did have a thing called. Um, yeah, I think it was F- FSP, financial services for the poor. Um, but they were predominantly looking at credit and savings. They didn't really, you know, they hadn't really yet started to look at insurance. And so, I, I knew I had to get them interested in insurance. And and I kind of found out, you know, where they were going to be. You know, it, it, it was possible to work out at that point, um, you know, that there was this conference and you know they were going to be at this hotel or whatever. Um, and I just went and camped out at that hotel until I you know and I had a, had an idea of who these people were and what they looked like, who worked at the foundation and just went and sat there and i in one instance I think I sat there for two or three days um you know and <laughs> it just literally kind of you know incredibly uncomfortable um and I just sat there until I got to to speak to them um, and I got to speak to them and told them you know like you know we we're doing insurance and they said our oh, insurance that'll never work and i said well we've got a million clients and that, that kind of got their attention and so it led to kind of an 18-month conversation where you know they got interested but then said okay well we'll you know we'll have to float an rfp and get other people to apply you know and, and so they kind of looked to me and i helped write the rfp and then i applied for the for the rfp and then i guess what i got the money and and it was a really bizarre one because i mean and i'm not sure i should probably share this story, but it's 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 funny, it's too funny not to. Um and and this was, you know, by now it's kind of, you know, the 2007, somewhere around there. Um and the world, you know, this is before kind of Lehman brothers, right? Before the kind of dot-com and you know, the, the world goes into recession. And, and and the Gates Foundation had a problem. And the Gates Foundation's problem was that they couldn't give money away fast enough because in order to maintain your your kind of charitable status, you had to give away you had to give away a certain amount of your your kind of money um, and i went to see them and they said look we like what you're doing we like what you're thinking about but two million dollars is too small right you know we can't write a check for that so so i was in the meeting and, and we just moved the decimal place and we called it 25 million um, so it was i was asking for 2.5 and we moved the decimal place and pushed the pushed the application back across the desk and it said 25 and they said well that'll do and i walked out of that meeting with 25 million dollars um, and I, I remember calling my wife and saying you know uh we, we we got the money and, and 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 being absolutely terrified because at that point our annual budget was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's what we were spending a year, and then the following year I had to spend five point five million and had no idea how I was going to do it.
1: Huh. That's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I mean, what I hear from that is I love the idea of a young Richard Leftley sitting in the you know the waiting in the. the the reception of a hotel waiting for somebody to appear and and just stalking and then, and then finally getting the opportunity and and having to be really brave and brash and step forward. And I hear in all of that, there's some bravery and some courage and I can understand why that must be thoroughly exhausting in so many ways to just get to a point where you can get the support that you need to start selling these products to people who actually really, really need them. Um, and well, I, I, don't,
0: I, I don't have many I don't have many redeeming personal characteristics, but um, I, the one that I have, which is useful as a, a if you're going to be involved in startups is is just refusing to ever, ever give up. So I can't tell you how many times people have told me along the way that this is that I'm mad. It's stupid. It will never work. Um, I've met like for every one person that's been excited by what we're going to do. I've met 100 have told me that I'm mad and it will never work. And I've just and, and, and uh, I think I'm I think. If you look at MicroInsure, what we've done is, we've just kind of like said we're sure that there's that, that, that we're sure that we're right about what's broken in the market. Mm-hmm. But clearly, you know, if you look at MicroInsure, it's a story of a company who has said, okay, we're going to try and address this these market weaknesses by being a broker. And then when we get smacked down and you know uh, and, and fail at that, we say, okay, these are the, the same weaknesses that we saw before but we're going to now be a technology company. And when we get smacked down, we say, okay, same weaknesses, but now we're a call center company. We get smacked down and guess what? We're now an insurance company, right? And you know what? I hope we don't get smacked down. I really do because I'm kind of running out of things that, you know, <laughs> of ways of addressing the same four issues. So you know, i hoping this is it. Um, oh, but, Richard, but, but, if, but if it is, then I'll do it. I'll get, I'll get back up and we'll just keep going.
1: Yeah. And, um, I wonder, you said something earlier on, you used the word passion, and I suppose like my question was going to be, why is passion important in work? Is it important in work? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, I I hope it's important in work.
1: Um,
0: I mean, if it's not, then 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 life's... <laughs> we spend an awful lot of time at work. I don't know. I, I do. I'm sure you do, too. Um, and, and we spend a lot of time sat at our desk, so we, you know... For me, finding something that I'm passionate about, and I think that goes right back to the beginning, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think I said I, I wasn't, I, I didn't really want to grow up to look like the people that were my bosses, and and the reason for that is because I couldn't get passionate about doing their jobs. I couldn't be passionate about that's what my life is about. I mean, my life, my life is I enjoy my life because I'm doing something I feel passionately about. I'm I'm helping people, and and you know, I mean, for me, William, I mean, look every time I get a bit run down, every time I get a bit kind of like despondent, I I, I think, okay, well, I'm going to be going on a trip, you know, next week or the week after, and I'm going to be in Pakistan or Bangladesh or wherever. And I just make sure I go spend some time with the clients that we serve. And, you know, I I eke out half a day and I kind of go and just go and hang out with them. and, And it's really hard to come away from those interactions and not have a fire in your belly, because frankly, the lives that these people live, the lives you know, the risk that they face every single day, is just in, it will be inconceivable to us, you know, in, in the West. And so you come away from those interactions, and you and you just and you have a new resolve to double down and and do something right and and to mm. be useful to humankind. And that's what that's what it's about for me. Mm.
1: So I wonder, on that actually, um, what the younger Richard Lefley would say to you about that passion and about that. Um, if you said don't do it, and I um I, I can identify a lot. I'm an I'm an entrepreneur myself. I mean, I'm certainly not selling stuff in and selling products to people who are who are experiencing the very lives that you're talking about. But there is something about getting beaten down, being to be an entrepreneur that is just part and parcel of running your own business, of giving something a go, starting a new project, starting a new product, and trying to get it to work. There's so much failure involved, and so much fatigue at times with that process. Um, so I can entirely understand also why, looking back, I may also think the same at times.
0: Um, well, well, the young Richard Leftley, if the old Richard Leftley showed up, would tell the old man to get out of his way. And but <laughs> 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 like, you know, but I mean, but I mean, I mean, if you're not if you're not willing to have a bit of failure, um, then don't don't start out on the journey. Um, definitely, yeah. that that's absolutely true. Um, but I think what's important is, and it, you know. It's not all about failure. I mean, it's, it is about learning from those mistakes, learning from, you know, and, and actually for me, there's, an, there's a great deal of joy in learning from, from those mistakes and having a bit of a laugh about them, um, you know, and th- thinking, you know, why did we do that? I mean, I remember, I remember one of the first products we ever launched in, in Zambia um, was a life insurance and it was, was called Entula and it was for one person and, and five family members. And we thought this was a fantastic product um because uh, you know it was the first product where it covered six you know it covered these six people and, and and but you know african families were quite big um and what we hadn't realized was that you know in the weeks and months before we launched the product there'd been a huge number of stories in the, in the local newspaper about kind of black magic and of course six is this number which is kind of linked to kind of black magic and so when we launched our product and it was to do with death everyone assumed that we were we were witches and so we had a we had a riot, and people, were, you know, literally kind of like were we had to get kind of you know evacuated from this from this small town because people wanted to kill us. So you know, there's kind of like these kind of hilarious kind of how did we get it so wrong? You know, we we were here to help people, and they wanted to kill us. I mean, you know, so we've made so many mistakes along the way. It's been uh, and some of them are are genuinely kind of weird and wonderful.
1: Wow, that's. I think that's what I've loved about some of the stories you've told me in the past and this idea of working in emerging markets is that so much of the sanitization, the homogenization and lack of risk is gone from operating in Western markets. And I can, there's actually a visceral experience, I'm sure, to be in those markets where, like you said, if you get it wrong, it, it can be like really dangerous, right? Um, oh, yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's also what what. Makes it so difficult for insurance firms in the West to actually get involved in those markets. And that actually makes me think about um, parametric insurance. And one of the I wanted to talk to you about because parametrics in the insurance industry, for those of listening who aren't insurance bods, parametric insurance is, is a different type of insurance. It's been around for a long time, but it's basically a payout that happens based on some predefined metrics or scores or criteria. Whereas traditional insurance is indemnity based and it's about covering the loss you actually experience. So a loss adjuster comes along and claims for that. But we um, parametrics are very cool at the moment. And I, I remember talking to you about that a while back and um, you, you, know, you told me about your experiences and you've been using them for a long time. So maybe you could just tell me about your experience of working with parametrics. And if you think there's something that could be useful where we are right now with COVID and various other things. So yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts about parametric insurance?
0: Well, yeah, we, we did our first parametric in two thousand and four, um, so a long time ago, um, and, and it was for smallholder farmers uh, who were growing groundnuts in Malawi. And the parametric was okay was related to, to rainfall. So what we worked out was that rainfall was linked to yield. So the, you know if there was if there wasn't enough rain, then the, the groundnuts didn't grow, and then they didn't have a harvest. And if they didn't have a harvest, they couldn't sell it for money. So proxy, the the, the the trigger was rainfall, um, and rainfall was the proxy for harvest or, or, or financial gain. And, and therefore, um, we were using rainfall as a way of automatically triggering a kind of payout to the farmer. Of course, parametric kind of cuts back to this whole the whole conversation that I've been talking about around the customer journey. It's a, it's a way in which you can exceed the client's expectation, because, you know, you don't even have to make a claim. So parametric basically is an automatic trigger that says, hey, you know, your plane was late uh, or there wasn't enough rainfall or the wind was too strong and therefore there must have been some damage or, you know, there was a flooding event or a landslide event. And so it means that the client doesn't even have to make a claim. It just automatically happens and they get sent some money. And that's a great way of delighting a customer. You know, I didn't even have to make a claim and they sent me some money because they knew that there was, a dam- there was some damage and therefore I needed some money. So it's a fantastic way of, of kind of smoothing out this, this customer journey when it comes to claims. I think, unfortunately, within the micro insurance setting, when you say parametric, it normally ends up resulting in some kind of weather insurance for smallhold farmers. And, and, and those products have been problematic, although you know we have been trying uh, more recently to use parametric for other products, which I'm much more excited about.
1: Like what well,
0: I think I mean, so firstly, I think in my head, micro is being redefined a little bit, so micro of course means low income people and middle income people in emerging markets um and we're you know and we're selling them kind of low value or, or or small ticket insurance, so you know we're selling them insurance products with a small payout and a small price, but micro also means uh, increasingly for me, it means uh, insurance to people like gig workers who might want to buy insurance for. A short period of time or for a short distance um, so you know we some of the most recent products we've done have been things like um you know um, individuals who are maybe may white-collar workers during the day but in the evenings they want to be a personal trainer in a gym and they don't want to buy professional indemnity insurance for the whole year and they just want it for 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes whilst they're doing a personal training session or you know people that are involved in traveling across countries so a lot of our clients and travel. They're, they run these small businesses, and they they sell t- they they sell tomatoes or they sell commodities. But they have to travel around the country to buy those products, um, and they're very affected by you know bus journeys being you know the buses they travel on break down quite often. And when and when they break down, it's not like an hour. You know, it's, it, can, it can be a day or a week. You know, that the, the bus takes to get fixed. So there's a huge effect on their on on, on them. Um, so you know we're looking at parametric around travel. We're looking around parametric around um kind of gig workers so you know uh if you if you use your bike uh, or your motorbike to give people a lift and you work for uber um and then you you know you you suffer a breakdown um you know being able to tell that someone that they that, that they normally are moving you know between six o'clock and nine o'clock and then seeing that actually they're, they're stationary you know that the fact that they're stationary means that they're not going to be earning money. And is that because they've broken down? Is it because it's raining? Is it because there's no business? It doesn't matter. They're not earning money. And so having a parametric trigger that says, "Okay, I can track you and you're normally moving between six and nine. And therefore, you know, you tell me that you normally earn $3 a night. Well, I'll pay you $3 tonight because you're not moving.
1: So parametric is a great way to be imaginative with products. Um, Reimagine the way that you can serve your clients. But also the distribution process, the customer experience sounds like it can be very, very immediate, very smooth, very directional in terms of getting the, the result the over, over delivering to a client pretty quickly. Um, Absolutely. Yeah,
0: you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's easy to imagine creating an insurance product and selling it. The, the difficult bit is always how do I pay the claim quickly, consistently, and in a way that the client feels delighted about. And parametric opens up a whole range of, of, of ways of doing that.
1: Because you're working in a sector where in microinsurance, where you're, it's probably fair to say, disagree with you one, but it's fair to say that there's more meaning. You feel like the people who are coming to your company have more, maybe have more sense of meaning that they're helping underserved, they're helping people in emerging markets have very different needs. When it comes to growing your teams and hiring people, do you have to look for a different type of person or do you attract a different type of person because of that? So can you tell us a bit about your experience building teams for a company like microinsure?
0: yeah um and i wouldn't and i wouldn't say i'm great i'm I'm an expert in it um in any way. i think i think the i think the honest answer is is that the good news is that an organization like microchip probably attracts a certain kind of person um you know because there are people that want to work in a social business um, that's having a positive impact and that you know they they get that kind of sense of of achievement and I think we'd probably attract those kind of people and so we have a bias towards them. I think what we're looking for increasingly, um, and it's kind of interesting, is we're looking for people that can just that just have that kind of, yes, I can do it kind of mentality. So we, we recently did some work with our team and we, we, we did that kind of, you know, all these kind of analysis. And we were obviously trying to map out Kind of who were the people in our team, depending on whether they were people, you know, extroverts, introverts, um, or whether they're detail oriented or they were kind of, you know, big thinkers. And, you know, we're plotting them on these kind of scales and we use kind of four colors, you know, so we use red, yellow, green, and blue. Um, and, and we put people in these categories. And the reason we do it this way is because, you know, um, it cuts across different cultural boundaries and, and it helps people with different languages to understand kind of where they fit in. And, and it was really interesting because we've got a real spread of people, but of course, we're a sales led organization. So, you know, a lot of our senior leadership is, is quite sales, sales kind of led. Um, and it's been really hard to find people that are kind of sales driven, but also compassionate um, and, and, you know, have that kind of desire to actually serve more people you know, rather than just kind of hitting targets and things like that. And so we tend to look for people who have a kind of can do attitude and quite, it's interesting, quite a lot of the people that come into our organization end up staying with us for quite a long time. And I think the reason they do that is because once we've hired someone who's got a kind of like, you know, a kind of can-do mental attitude, they quite often start off relatively junior positions and end up being country managers. So the end of last year, we had, we had our kind of country manager in Ghana who'd been with us for seven or eight years. Um, kind of say, you know, Look, I, I think it's time I stepped aside and went and helped my family run the family business. Um, and we looked internally and we realized that actually, you know, the most, the, the person that we wanted to kind of promote into that role um, was, another, was another woman. So the, 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 the lady who was running the country was stepping aside. And the most obvious person to replace with was a local uh, woman who had joined us straight from university in a, you know, as a kind of claims clerk uh, and had worked her way through the organization and just was such a go-getter. You know, and, and, and we put her in the role and I said to her, look, you know, we're going to put you on probation here and, and, and give you this role. And we're in the middle of COVID lockdown. And I said to her, look, I need you to go to the regulator and get this letter, uh, you know, because we need it. Um, and um, I understand it's lockdown, I understand that the regulator is working from home and therefore it's going to be difficult. And she said, no, not, not a problem. I'll get it for you today. I, and I said, "Look, don't overpromise, you know, because you know you don't know that." She said, "No, I'll get it for you." And in an hour, she had a letter signed from the regulator. And I don't—I still to this day don't know how she did it. <laughs> I don't really, and, and you know, I don't really mind how she did it, but she did it. And that's the kind of people that we're looking for—people that just kind of say, "Look," it, it, a lot of people would say it's impossible. The regulator's working from home; he's not going to sign a letter. But you know, she just went, and whatever she did, she went, and she. Yeah. You know,
1: it kind of, kind of reminds me of a, a young man sitting in the you know, maybe the reception of a hotel waiting for someone to turn <laughs> up yeah um i, uh, I, do, I do like those kind of people who, who, <laughs> are, who refuse give in. just refuse to give in and just keep, keep i do going. as well that's what it's beautiful and, and that brings to mind actually a lot of people who are probably listening to this are, are in you know either switzerland the uk and the us and might be asking themselves, like, how hard is it to have a team that's all over the world? Because I haven't actually mentioned that—that you know, your your business of people all over the world in distributed markets. I mean, God, you've been distributed before. It's been cool to be distributed, right? How the hell do you manage that? Different cultures, getting stuff done—is it—is it any different, or are people just all the same? You know, what's been your experience on that?
0: Yeah, you know, I think people are remarkably similar. Of course, there's cultural differences. I think though that what we what what we've done is we've tried to keep our kind of western leadership really small so we've only ever hired people in the uk if we couldn't find out those people in the countries and the biggest mistakes we've made is where we've overhired in the uk and we should have been hiring in pakistan or in india or you know ghana or kenya or wherever we were And we've certainly never hired expats and had the expats run the countries we've always trusted the locals and that and the reason for that is because the locals understand their culture we're never going to understand their culture in the way that they do and so i think just being I think just being respectful you know have we got it right? have we got it wrong? I think we've probably got it wrong more than we've got it right' be honest, and it's really really hard, but I think ultimately you know like there are some just you know common human decencies of respecting people and um, trusting them and not not kind of you know putting them down and and and, and a lot of um I mean a lot of people. I speak to in our organisation just like working here because because of that. I mean, you know, I've had I've had people tell me that it's the first organisation they've ever worked at where, you know, they haven't had to kind of jump through hoops for their boss to get a promotion, and they just get promoted because they're good at what they do. And and you know, I think I think when people see that, it, it attracts others to it. So so for us, I mean, you know, working remotely, it certainly has its challenges, but I think. It's about relation. I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but it it is about relationships. It's about taking the time to actually get to know people as a person, and respecting them as an equal, and demonstrating that just over and over and over, uh, and being genuine about it. And then, and then that becomes part of the culture of the organisation. Then it's you know, literally doesn't matter where you're from or what your name is. You 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 know, if you can do the job and get it done, then 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 you've got the job.
1: Fantastic. It's good to hear that, and I think. um... Maybe often it's just a case of giving it a go, right? And um, I mean, I certainly say to people that I'm advising them to hire is, yeah, you've got to know what you want. You've got to know what competencies you want, but you've also got to be really clear on the values and the motivations. And I'm a believer that, that those values and motivations are universal, no matter the the country or where you are from. And if we can treat people like people and be consistent in, in understanding what we look for, and then treat them with respect and give them the opportunity and the responsibility. Yeah. And then you usually can get a hell of a lot done. I mean, I can't profess to have worked in your markets, but I know I've certainly worked interculturally across all across Europe, um, North America, and in Asia. And I've been astounded by the fact that people are just people <laughs> trying to get by, oh, trying yeah. to do these things. And um, yeah, if you make if you just listen out for those values and those competencies and the right motivations. You can build great teams no matter where you are absolutely i mean i
0: i am um, i have a bit just on that i mean i so in the philippines it's very common for people you know they call they call anyone they call them the, the people from the philippines but they also call foreigners kind of sir or ma'am, right and so if you're their boss they call you sir and of course i find that really really difficult and so um i've told them that i don't want to be called sir so they they then had a big problem with that because they like to call their you know like to show respect and so they, they changed it and they said, okay, well, we can't call you sir. And so they started calling me chief because then, you know, like chief is, you know, I'm not offended by chief. So, so then, so then I started calling them funny names as well. You know, I like can coming up with, coming up with like your lordship and, you know, yes, sir, and, and we had a lot of fun with it, you know, and, and it's kind of, I think sometimes you've got to be respect, you know, I've got to respect the fact that the Philippines want to show respect to their, to their boss. That's important to them, part of their culture. And they've got to respect the fact that I don't like being called sir because for me it comes with a whole bunch of baggage. Being called sir by by a Filipino, I don't I don't like that. Um, you know, and so we've we've both accommodated each other, and, and I think that that's a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, that is very true. There's a type of humility in there and integrity, and uh, you've got to stick to what you believe in some ways, but also accommodate the beliefs of others in the best way you can, and maybe a bit of fun yeah. is it's probably a good way to do that. Well, I, I'm mindful of your time, but I, I would just like to kind of finish up asking you a couple of kind of quick-fire questions. I suppose who yeah. has really influenced you in your development?
0: Well, I mean, uh, for me, uh, be some of the clients. I mean, I that sounds cheesy, but a lot of the products that we've developed have come from these um, very, very harrowing experiences of sitting with with a mother who's just lost a child, and you know, hearing her story and realizing that you know we've got to do something about this and you know, so health insurance was a product that I felt we'd never ever be able to do, um, but that I made a promise to a woman in, in, in a slum in Bangladesh um, 10 or 15 years ago now, and I promised her we'd find a way to do it. And we have, and we've done that. Uh, I would also say that people like, um, you know, we've, we've interweaved a lot of kind of behavioral economics. That's been really, really critical to our success you know, understanding behavioural economics. And so, you know, some of the guys that are working on the behavioural economics side, like Dan Ariely, you know, who, who are really kind of masters of this, have really helped us in our thinking.
1: Behavioural economics. Um, what's your quick primer to behavioural economics for those um, out there who've never heard of it before? What is behavioural economics?
0: Oh, Behavioural economics is understanding how uh, humans think about product and price. So, you know, for example, um, when you walk into a restaurant and pick up the wine list, um, and the cheapest bottle of wine is 12 pounds, and there's one of those, and then there's a whole bunch that are £13, thirteen, fourteen, or 15 pounds, uh, and you know m- majority at that price, and then there's a few that are twenty five going up to thirty five. And so what you've just done is you've just anchored that the right price for a bottle of wine is somewhere between 12 to thirty five pounds. You know, guess what? You know which one sells the most? Well, it's the one that' was at 15 pounds, but, because basically you don't want to buy the cheapest one because you don't want to have, like a cheapskate but you also don't want to spend 35 pounds on a bottle of wine. So you end up buying one that's kind of like not the cheapest, but not the most, you know, but it's in that kind of 15 to 18 pounds. That's what they sell. And most restaurants don't even have the 12 pound bottle of wine or 35 pound bottle of wine. They just have it on the list to give you the right anchoring, you know, the anchor points of what a bottle of wine should cost in this restaurant. And the same is very, very true for insurance. Uh, You know, these people don't have insurance. They don't know what the product should cost. So quite often we end up, with a product which we don't actually want to sell but which anchors them in terms of okay well so the product should cost somewhere in the region of 50 cents to a dollar 50 okay i'll go for the dollar product you know (laughs) so it's, it's things like that it sounds
1: very
0: it sounds very obvious i could i could well we could spend another hour Easily put it <laughs> about behavioral economics, believe me. Yeah. Uh, Do you have, um, um,
1: if someone wants to find out more about that, I'll put some links to some um, presentations on behavioral economics. Do you have um, a book or a primer for someone that they might look at that, something you'd recommend?
0: Oh, well, I mean, the go to, you know, the, the Bible is, is a book called Predicti- uh, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. And that's a great starting point. That's the kind of 101 kind of entry level book on it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so this is kind of a neat lead on for me, really. What are your what are your sort of top three book recommendations? And it can be anything. It can be some like stuff you like reading for fun. It can be stuff you like reading for business. What are your sort of top three book recommendations, Richard? Uh,
0: well, the three books I'm reading at the moment, uh, I think, are the ones I could recommend. So um, I'm reading The Economist obituaries. So I don't know if you read The Economist, but at the back of The Economist, there's every week there's an obituary. And some of them are for very famous people, some of them are for people that you've never heard of. But they pull together, every so often they pull together a book. the obituaries Uh, and it's fascinating too i love it sounds a bit morbid but i love reading about people and what they did in their lives and the decisions they made and some of them very dark kind of sinister people some of them (laughs) incredibly joyful you know amazing people that kind of changed the world for good and some of them it's people you've never ever heard of and you just think wow you know like it's fascinating what people achieved in their lives so i love reading obituaries uh, I'm <laughs> also reading uh, a book uh, by a historian about the fall of Berlin at the end of the Second World War, um, which is fairly harrowing, actually. Um, it, it's, fairly, it's a fairly harrowing read. It's not a joyful read at all. Um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, I am actually reading at the moment um, Barack Obama's um, Audacity of Hope. Um, and, and the reason for that is because my teenagers read it and loved it. And they were teasing me that I didn't, I'm, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm not woke enough. So I, I decided to read that.
1: <laughs> well, we're going to end on a positive one there because um, the obit- economic obituaries the fall of Berlin and that um, Barack of a Audacity of hope. Thank you very much for that. Where were people going to find you, Richard, if they want to reach out or connect with you? Where, where should they find you?
0: Sure. I mean, uh, the best place is probably through LinkedIn. Um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, um, do read my messages and get back to people. Um, or they can just send me uh, a, an email. So um, old fashioned, I know, but Um, kind of richard at microinsurance.com.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Richard, I'd just like to say thank you so much for the time you've given me today. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.
0: It's been great to be with you. Thank you.
1: if you enjoyed this episode please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts it really helps us so thank you very much we also have a newsletter on our website talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at talent equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year